If you are ready to change the way people experience the transition to parenthood, you've come to the right place. On this podcast, we interview postpartum professionals, academics and researchers, as well as parents with unique perspectives on postpartum. Whether you've been working with new families for decades or are brand new to postpartum care, we'd love you to join us. I'm your host, Julia Jones. Hello and welcome to Newborn Mothers Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. I'm very um, happy to present you, Pinky McKay. And Pinky, I've been a big fan of your work for many years and read many of your books, as I know many of our our podcast listeners um, have as well. And what I really wanted to chat to you about today is is kind of like where it all started for you because you really, um, I think, opened up um, a sort of a, a, you were really a new voice, I think, in terms of getting women in touch with themselves and their babies. Um, And uh, we'd just love to know more about how that started and what things used to be like. So can we go right back to the beginning? You can introduce yourself and I'd love to hear about your experience of, of mothering in the 70s as well. Okay, so hi Julian, it's a pleasure to be here. Really good to be talking to the converted, really. You know, the natural mums, the natural doulas, the people who care for mothers in a in a natural, supportive way. But what happened was I had my first baby in the 70s in Melbourne. Um, I actually originally a New Zealander. I'm probably half half now. You know, it's interesting when we watch the rugby because I had two kids in New Zealand, but my first baby was born in Melbourne. He, he it was a tricky time. Um, he was in NICU for a while because he had an infection. He went back into hospital, you know, I, but I didn't know anyone else that was breastfeeding and very much I've got six sister-in-laws all older than me who all had their babies before me who were very much, you know, the, at the time the routine was four hourly feeding. And I was given this chat before I left hospital that if my baby still needed night feeds at six weeks. I was to give him a bottle of boiled water because that would train him out of needing a night feed at six weeks. So I couldn't see the sense of that. Why would I get up in the middle of the night and boil water and make a bottle when I had milk in my boobs? It just didn't, you know, breastfeeding was a pretty tricky journey in the beginning, but I just had this self-belief. One of the women gave me, one of the midwives gave me a copy of The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding, which was a little thin blue book back in the days. And I sort of had that in my head that, you know, it could be quite a natural thing and there was a bit of supply and demand going on. I still didn't know a lot, but I also had grown up in the country in New Zealand, a little village. We had a house cow and we had chooks and things. And I knew that cows had four stomachs. So I just assumed that formula would take longer to digest. So if my baby woke up in an hour or two hours, I just put him on the boob. Why would I go and make formula? You know, I just knew it would digest more quickly. Just that was my, you know, sort of belief. And I gone to the health nurse and she said to me, how many feeds a day is this baby having? And I said, what do you mean? I don't know. She said, has he dropped any feeds? And I said, look, he's probably gone from 24 to 22. (laughs) And she just laughed at me. She had worked in New Guinea. And so she didn't tell me that I didn't have enough milk or anything. And the one cheerleader I had was a beautiful woman at the local fruit shop who had breastfed her daughter through a concentration camp. Um, And, you know, during the Second World War, and she used to be so proud of me breastfeeding my baby that she, once he could sit up in the pram, she'd give him a piece of peach to chew on or something like that, you know, but she was quite lovely. Other than that, I didn't know anybody. And I even went to the GP with a lump in my breast at eight months. And he said to me, he pressed my breast and got squirted in the eye. I didn't know I was getting mastitis. 
even though I had mastitis early on in hospital, it still didn't, you know, it was a blocked duck, but I didn't realize that's how, you know, how educated I was, but I was just following my baby. And then um, we moved back to New Zealand and I met a lady um, living next door to my elderly uncle and aunt where we were moving to. And she invited me to a LHA league meeting because by then my baby was a year old and my mother had told me, if you don't wean this child, you'll lose your husband because that's what happened to an auntie of mine. She was still breastfeeding my cousin at, you know, four or five years old, I think. But, you know, um, the husband will run away if you don't give him back your boobs. Some, some strange, yeah, which I thought was bloody ridiculous anyway. But, um, you know, and my uncle had lots of other women after that. So it was nothing to do with his wife breastfeeding. Um, anyway, I went along to LHA League and I was quite relieved that I didn't have to wean my child because there were toddlers there breastfeeding and I had this little one-year-old just turned one. And I just thought what a relief it was because I didn't know how I was going to stop this. And, you know, he gradually weaned himself somewhere between 18 months and two when I was pregnant with his brother. And, um, yeah, so LHA League had a big impact on supporting me as a mother and supporting that intuitive type of mothering that felt right for me um, there. So we lived in New Zealand for about five years and I was a group leader with LHA League in Hamilton. I also went back nursing at weekends at um, the women's hospital there. Um, you know, I had two little kids and I was nursing in the maternity ward, postnatal wards, and sometimes the antenatal ward, but in postnatal wards there at weekends. And it was a really interesting time in New Zealand, the late 70s, because it was just about when home birth came in. So, And I'd left my babies with um, my grandmother one day to go to a meeting about home birth. And um, my nana said, I don't know what all the fuss is about. She said, I had all my babies at home and Auntie Lucy had all her babies at home. And there was a local lay midwife who used to, called Winnie, who used to come and you know, be there for the birth and she cooked dinner for the family afterwards, clean up, cook dinner for the family and go home and check on you the next day kind of thing. So this culture of birth and breastfeeding being normal, which I hadn't found when I had my baby here, I found, you know, people quite scaremongering around babies. Um, yeah, so it was quite a different attitude and that the next couple of babies just came pretty easily in New Zealand. And yeah, I don't know, one of my, one of the guys I'd worked with, one of the doctors sort of rocked up late and um, yeah, it was just, I don't know, it was just normally rocked up in his pajamas in the middle of winter because <laughs> to be there for my birth. And even when a placenta didn't come out, um, you know, the midwife just said to me, I'll put her on the breast and we'll see what happens. Like there was no alarmist. It was, it was a completely different mindset. And even when I've gone back, um, I was actually doing a talk a few years ago at a La Leche League um, event. And there was a mum there with a beautiful newborn, but he just, he looked like a newborn, but he was massive. And my babies were all sort of nine poundish, you know, over 4,000 grams up to 10 pound. I had decent sized babies, but this kid looked really big. He was over 11 pounds. And I just kind of went, ouch well done and she said oh, I had him on the land room floor and it was her first baby so they've got this incredible system where women can have their own midwife they can go to birth centers or they can go to hospitals and they've got a lot of freestanding birth centers so there just wasn't that kind of fear level around 
That's so um, interesting. I, I think a lot of us are aware today of the differences in, between the New Zealand maternal health system and the Australian one, but I hadn't realised that that was that's been such a long time. You know, oh, that, that would have, would have been yeah. The home birth sort of thing was starting late seventies that that it was coming in, and then now it's a pretty efficient system. You know, people can choose whichever. You know, whether it's hospital, whether it's birth, freestanding birth centres. I've got some lovely freestanding birth centres. Um, so what brought you back to Australia and did you notice My husband's work. Yeah. Yeah, we came back. Um, you know, there was a recession on in New Zealand and he decided to come back. I mean, he came back. I had my third baby was six months old when we came back to Australia. I just could not find my people. It was really hard. And then eventually I, fa- I met Rhea Dempsey. So oh, a bit of a, that was 1980 type thing. So I met her in the early 80s, yeah. And while she was doing all the birth stuff, I was kind of doing the breastfeeding stuff and I I started a LHNE group in Melbourne because I just wanted to meet my people I'd gone to nursing mothers and was told um with my six-month-old baby and was told this is our night out without our babies and I went oh fuck no support here (laughs) like no no, and it's not a big you know it's not a, a not a thing about ABA at all because things have changed but that was you know in the early 80s that was it and I went to a conference to demonstrate a breast pump that um, Walter Whittlestone, who was a lactation physiologist in New Zealand, had, you know, it was a big thing and you wheeled it round the ward and you put it on mothers, but it had very physiological, very soft cups. You know, up till then you'd had a glass bulb with a rubber, a rubber bulb and a glass tube and you put that on your breast and you squeeze the rubber bulb and that was your breast pump, which wrecked your nipples anyway. It was horrible. Um, so... Um, and I was told to put my baby in the creche there. So I sat in the creche with her. I thought, I'm not my six-month-old baby. I'm not going to put her in a creche with strangers, you know, and this was at a breastfeeding conference. So then I felt really lost. I just couldn't find my people. But, you know, I started a little actually group here, and eventually um, I'd, I'd moved from, you know, I was doing a bit of nursing stuff at weekends between my babies. But, um, yeah, so I sort of found a tribe of more natural women um that way and I guess we live just below the hills in in um Melbourne so you know the women from the hills were much more natural birthy type women I went to home birth meetings even though I didn't actually have home births I went to home because I didn't have any postnatal support couldn't afford a home birth anyway but I went to home birth meetings and started to meet more natural um intuitive people which Mm. is really hard and I think at the moment there's a lot of intervention a lot of pressure on women to look at charts and routines and organize their lives you know you, you're doing it from a very right-brained masculine brain type perspective which doesn't necessarily feel right for women so anyway it went on that um, um I got a few years down the track and then I had I was diagnosed with, I had what was called thyroiditis. I had, it came up with a big lump and everybody thought I had cancer, but I didn't. Um, and I couldn't walk past the letterbox for a few days. So in, in the eighties, late eighties, I was doing 86. I did copy school. I was homeschooling my kids and I got into an advertising course where you went around the top ad agencies in Melbourne. And um, at that stage, I I had a two-year-old breastfeeding child that I was taking with me to weekend workshops that we had to stay over with. And I had never seen so much expensive alcohol or um, because I'd done this assignment with my kids and this is how I got into this course. They had 2,000 applicants and took 10 people. 
and they took me. You know, I had everybody else was in black, black and black and leather jackets and baggy pants and driving Porsches. And here was the mother with the kid on her boob. So it was quite funny. What made you want to do advertising? That just seems like quite a change. Well, it was because I was homeschooling my kids and I just saw this um, assignment in the paper, you know, and I just thought, oh, this sounds like a great thing to do with the kids. And I did it and then I thought, oh, there's a course. Maybe I could do that because I had no idea what advertising was. And when I got the thing to say that I'd got into this course, I had a friend whose boyfriend was uh, working in advertising and I said, oh, God, can I ring him? And she put me on. He said, you've got into that course. They only, they only take 10 people. I said, yeah, I know. I don't even know what you do. What does an advertising copywriter do? I had no idea. And he said, do it. So I did it. It was fantastic. You know, I learned all sorts of great things. We went around top ad agents in Melbourne twice a week in the evenings and then we had these weekend workshops um, and I did you know somebody had the um, Arnott's I think it was account and they had all these biscuits out one night and I passed the biscuits to somebody and say would you like a yummy choppy biggie was <laughs> 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 so mumsy you know I was right in the thick of you know four little kids and um, so I started you know, just doing stuff because I was homeschooling, so it worked in really well for me to do some writing work. And one day a week I would go into the city and I'd write all the ads for a, um, because, you know, we had newspapers then, we didn't have the internet, um, all the ads for a personnel agency. for the, So they were getting really creative ads because I'd just go in there one day a week and write all their ads for the weekend Saturday paper for all the um, job ads. So things were quite different, but I got when I got really sick, I couldn't see any clients because I had some private clients doing that. And, and it was much easier than nursing. Like, I could go home and do this work around my kids. It was brilliant. Um, and the internet had, uh, and then I started writing for The Age and for the um, Herald Sun, uh, the Herald it was in those days, the evening paper. The Sun was the morning paper. Now it's the Herald Sun. But I started writing for the newspapers and someone saw an article that I'd done there and asked if I'd adapt an American book. And then someone else said, could I, um, you know, write for various magazines? So I was writing for parenting magazines. and But in those days, the experts were all in their ivory towers, you know, because we didn't have the internet. And I'd be, but I think people were a bit more intuitive, but, you know, to write these articles and I'd be interviewing people and saying, look, I don't need to know the academic stuff. I'm a mum with a three-year-old, tell me what to do. You know, so that was what I was doing. Um, and I saw this. Oh, it was really funny because um, I was also writing for the feminist pages in The Age and going out and doing things like, you know, and into writing up about a one-woman King Lear play, you know, the feminist perspective of this and um, trying to be talking on the phone as my kids were roller skating through the house and um, trying to keep, oh, I'm minding a few children today. I'd just lie because no one would have thought I could do I don't know, it was very much mothers looked after their children and anyone who had children wasn't expected to be able to be, you know, to have that business capacity. Um, and But I noticed as the internet came in that mothers were relying far more on the outside information than, you know, what was in their hearts. So I just, and it was sort of overwhelming me at this stage. So I um, rang a publisher in Melbourne and told them that was when I had my first idea for the first version of Parenting by Heart. And they said, we don't do parenting books, 
But this lovely lady I was talking to, she was their acquisitions editor. And because, you know, I'd rung up and asked who this was. And then I put the phone down and then I rang this person directly um, to get through because you hear about all the slush piles of manuscripts and things like that. Anyway, she said, to, I said to her, can I just write a one pager? Would you like to have a look at it? And then I can send it off to, you know, a pub, another publisher. And she said, oh, yes. And sent her in a one pager and she rang me straight away. Within a week, I had a phone call saying, um, we'd like to do this book with you. Come and have lunch with me. So it sounds like your experience in advertising and copywriting would have been a really good kind of doorway for you to be able to get those ideas across in a time when women and mothers weren't necessarily taken that seriously, yeah. you know. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, really good. You know, and the yeah. idea of speaking to one person and a lot of making it concise and, you know, it was really good practice for writing and not waffling and, you know, getting your points across really quickly. So that was, you know, and it's been a great, you know, I can write great copy, but, you know, like. Yes, which yeah. is such an important um, skill, I think, now when you're trying to get a message out, you know. Yeah, so. well, now with the internet, it's really important. You know, like if you're selling a program or doing something like that, you really need to write that copy. Yes. So when was that um, Parenting by Heart? Close to 2000 it would have been. Yes. Yeah, the first version of it. Yeah, so that's 20 years ago. God. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so that would have been the first version. And then, um, again, I was seeing, you know, control crying was big. It was the big new thing and everybody was doing it with quite young babies. But, you know, I know it started from about six months, but then people were pushing it back and back and back. And it was breaking my heart. I just couldn't. I just, and I know it was, you know, when Christopher Green did Control Crying, it was graduated extinction because up till then there had just been extinction. And I remember with my six-month-old baby, when I first came back to Australia, like I had the nursing mother's experience and then I went to the local kindergarten, had a um, speaker from the university who was a child psychologist. And again, I rocked up with my baby and I was the only person in the hall with my baby. Um, and someone asked about with babies, leaving them to cry, how long do you leave them to cry? And he just said, till they stop. So it was just total extinction. And I just broke my heart. I just thought, why are we doing this to, to babies? You know, they're just new in the world. So anyway, I did Parenting by Heart. I went out and interviewed parents and got their stories, you know, and partners, you know, fathers in those days. Nobody ever said, how do you feel? It was, you know, they weren't really expected to help a lot, but most people were asking, what do you do to help? And I said, I don't want to know what you do. I want to know how you feel. And they would, you know, these big tough guys were tearing up at the thought that they were actually being asked how they felt. Um, yes, yes, which, you know, so much of this stuff, we still live in in the hangover of all of this, you know. Mm, it, I think yeah. this is still very prevalent. Well, we've got a generation of men who haven't been modelled by involved fathers anyway, generally. You yes. know, the partners now, and I mean, obviously we've got a lot more same-sex partners and, um, you know, so they, they haven't got role models necessarily either. Yes, and I also think we still live in a society that just wants a quick fix because control mm -hmm. crying is like the solution that means that no one else has to do anything. No one has to say, what does this mum need? How can we support yeah. this family? We need to improve childcare and, and options for women bringing their babies to places and support breastfeeding better. Yes. And that would require a huge amount of social... And make mothers welcome. 
Yes, and instead it's much easier to just say, lock the baby in a room. Let's let's yeah. just pretend this doesn't exist, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you can have your beautiful clean house and you can have your lovely partner relationship with no interruptions, no anything, whereas, of course, you're going to pay for it somewhere. Mm. And you're also going to feel really awful mm. when you're doing it. You know, it's not an easy thing to be doing and chances are in, you know, a few weeks' time the baby will get another tooth and, They'll be doing it over again. I think this is the big trick of control crying. Women are told that you do it once and then your baby's like cured for life. And they don't realize that anytime they go on holidays, anytime there's a growth spur, anytime there's a new tooth, they have to do the whole thing again. And I think that's what really breaks a lot of mothers is that when they just have to keep on doing it all the time. Mm, Yeah. And then the strict routines and the, you know, in the seventies, there were strict routines, but, you know, people think that if they put their baby on a proven routine, as some of the books say, you know, that you've, you've, it's a grasp for control, Mm. isn't it? You know, that people are trying, I mean, everybody's doing their best. It's not a, it's not a slur against mothers who are trying to do that, but it, it doesn't give you control because it's much, much harder to, you know, be looking at the clock, I can't go out because it's my baby's nap time or I can, can't pick up my mother from the airport because, you know, the baby's going to be needing a feed at X time or whatever. And it, that whole flexibility and, and surrender, I mean, I did a TED talk called Surrender is Not a Dirty Word and, you know, it's really about surrender and you surrender in labour, you surrender to birth, you, you surrender to that body when you're pregnant, you know, right through and that's all that, you know, surrendering to that newborn is... It's a big, big thing. It is. And I I think you're right in saying that it's sort of got to do with control because women have so little autonomy in our lives Mm. in many arenas. I think it's a bit like sometimes, you know, when people have eating disorders um, because it's the one thing in their life they can control, you know, and I think sometimes that can be like parenting. You know, women are like, we're going to have this routine because it's the one thing in my life that, I can control well, it. Will be predictable because that yes. whole uncertainty thing is so yes. hard for it's everybody. It's so difficult. Whereas I think really the solution is a lot more community care and, and support, support around mothers to give her more stability in other aspects of her life, you know, so she isn't clinging to that yeah. and needing that control. Well, even, you know, back in the 70s and it might have been, the, you know, it was that neighbourhood I lived in in New Zealand and, you know, women who were, going to LLHLE, but there was this very much that I didn't find, I found coming back to city Australia was very much people were in behind their six-foot fences, whereas until you got to know people. But, you know, someone would come and take your washing off the line if it was about to rain. You know, where I lived there, it was quite, you know, just a neighbourly thing to do that, you know, she's out and it's starting to rain, I'll get her washing off the line. But, you know, a friend that can come in and hold that baby while you're having a shower and, um, you know, and I was threatening to miscarry. I was bleeding from, you know, about five, six, seven months with or right through till about seven months with my third baby. And a friend, um, you know, came and cleaned my house for me. You know, it was just, mm. you know, just, just those gestures of some other woman supporting you. And we used to do things like um, another woman who nursed at the hospital and she was a single mum and on her days off, her and I would go to an orchard and she had one child, but then we'd come back and we'd preserve fruit or we'd have a bake-up day together and we'd each take home some frozen meat, some meals to put in our freezer, you know, and we'd done that together so that there was another woman with the children. So that community thing 
is really lovely, but I think there's been so much pressure and I think social media plays into this to some extent that we have to be seen to be coping. And I think it's really hard to reach out and say, you know, can you help me? Hey there, I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that if you are really enjoying this episode, then you'll really enjoy Newborn Mothers Collective too. The Collective is online postpartum training and professional development with over a thousand students from 40 different countries around the world. Wherever you are in your postpartum career, taking your first step or with decades of experience, if you feel a deep calling to work with new families during this life-changing transformation, Newborn Mothers Collective is for you. Learn more over at newbornmothers.com training and enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, so which brings me to my next question. So since 2000, when you wrote your first book and to now, which, you know, a lot of the world has changed, particularly with relation to social media, but how do you think things are going? Sort of what's improved? What's gotten more difficult? Well, I think it's good that there's more knowledge out there. That's, you know, that's really good, but it's sort of that double-edged sword. Like the more information we we have, we stay in our headspace. I mean, we need that information, but I always say to mum, say, is it safe? Is it respectful? And does it feel right for you? But then, you know, a few years in, I, you know, a couple of years after that, I was, you know, doing some sort of talk and I talked to a baby massage association and I just went, I'm going to do this course. So I did baby massage um, training and then I did my lactation and I was at another conference and somebody said to me, why don't you do your IBCLC? And I went, oh, and I, I, I hadn't actually occurred to me because I wasn't practicing around breastfeeding or anything, you know, and I would refer to friends who were lactation consultants if I knew people were having trouble in my massage classes. And then um, I looked it up and I went, oh, wow, I've got all the background because I had, you know, 12 to 14 years of being a breastfeeding counsellor. I had um, worked in the hospital, had hours. I had to go back and get all those hours. They've the time thing but you know they were all within the time span that I needed them so then I just did the education hours and set the exam and I'm one of these kind of people that if I decide to do something I'm going to do it it's it's going to happen now so I think it was probably like you know March I decided July I set the exam there was no mucking around you know like I just went (laughs) full on we're going to do this um yeah so you know that's so that's been 15 years of being an IBCLC but um yeah which I which I you know, I love that work and I love to see a mother who's been told that she won't be able to breastfeed or that she might as well give up or whatever, you know, to encourage that mother to keep going, whether she can fully breastfeed, whatever her goals are, they're her goals, not mine, um, you know, that she needs that support. But I think a lot of practical support. I think, look, with COVID this year, mothers have done it really hard. You know, you, we're in Melbourne, um, my daughter's in Dubai. They had total lockdown there. And to have just to have a neighbour or a friend come and hold your baby while you have a shower, for someone to drop you off a meal, those sort of things are really important. But that hasn't been happening this year because of... Um, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. This is a social experiment that no one wanted, but no doubt, you know, as we look back on this time in a few years, we'll probably learn a lot about breastfeeding and isolation and, and what mm. that does. For some women, it's been, you know, it's been a blessing that they haven't had lots of pressure to go out and about and be seen out and about, you know, to to get that baby going visiting or having lots of visitors. Mm. It's been that that pressure's been off. But to have the help and support 
um, has been, I think, really hard for them. And, yes. And I think something that's really hard about, look, social media can be beautiful and supportive, but it can also be a mine of misinformation, but it can also be, you know, it's not just the little old lady in the supermarket saying, oh, he really needs socks on, to somebody across the world, you know, bagging out a mother because she's not doing it your way. Mm, that acceptance yeah. needs to come in. And then there's the cry of, you know, mum shaming. <laughs> and you go, you cannot feel shamed unless you give permission. Yes. You know, there's a fine line between shooting the messenger and, you know, someone being nasty to you. You know, it, it, it's, it's awful because it can be both. You know, one of the things that you say that I often will um, pass on to people is never let anyone should on you. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I think that's, um, this is the thing, like, you should put socks on that baby or, you know, you should give yeah. that baby formula. But, yeah, yeah. I, I always love that. But, that. but that's it. But it's really hard because mums are in a really vulnerable state, you know, and people don't say, they always say, how's the baby? They don't say, how are you? Yes. You know, so is he a good baby? Does he sleep all night? All this. So it's a lot of judgy kind of stuff. What can feel judgy? People are often inquiring because they've got your best interest at heart, but they're not then saying, would you like me to come and, you know, hold your baby while you have a nap? People aren't doing that, but they're all, you know, is he a good baby? Which is really a horrible. And I just say to mums, look, just tell them, no, he's a little bugger. He's robbing banks already. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get, them, get them off the... <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Two things things that really stood out from your personal story going way back to the beginning there was that the fact that you had a few cheerleaders, it sounded like there were a few kind of critical people along the way who said, this is great, keep going. Um, But also that you were just so confident. You just had this really confident commitment to breastfeeding um, and this really strong kind of feeling that this is normal and, you know, this is what my body's meant to do. Um, So, yeah, I think as a uh, in your writing and as a supporter of mothers, I think you've really passed a lot of those things on. I really think, you know, trusting yourself. And I mean, that was the basis of my Parenting My Heart book, you know, trust yourself and trust your baby and trust that connection between you. It's mm. really, because I think if, you know, I like to think the mother is the expert and, and you know, of course we need to go out and get information. We need to go and get our babies checked if we're worried about anything medically or health it's good to get them checked. You know, you don't just say, I know everything or I should know everything because even that's another pressure on you. You know, it's good to have that. But to find those supportive professionals who will support you because it's really it's really hard and at any age you can feel undermined. Like, But it's getting that strength and that confidence because, you know, I've got, I've got a son with dyslexia. He was probably about nine and I went to... Um, children's hospital appointment with him and had all these particular specialists at learning things. And then I got absolutely slammed that it was all my fault that he couldn't read well, you know, and I'm thinking, hang on, I've got five teenagers who are all literate. This child has a disability. It's not my fault. But I had to give myself a damn good talking to because I felt like crap after that Mm. appointment that I must have not done enough. So, you know, I knew intellectually, but it was just, feelings you know when you've got two or three people in a room telling you you've you've got to do xyz or you haven't done it right or yeah it can be yeah this is so common and it's definitely gendered i was just reading an article about two gay dads who said that 
when they went to like mums groups and the mums were like, how are you coping with all the advice? And they were like, what advice? They oh. said no one ever stops them in the street and says your baby should have socks on. Um, they said everyone's like, oh, what a wonderful dad that you're engaged with your baby, you know. And so they were saying as men they never got that kind of blame for, you know. Right. And men don't feel guilt because when I went out to start interviewing them for Parenting My Heart, you know, one of my chapters was on guilt and I was asking these dads about guilt. What guilt? You know, and and one dad who travelled a lot with his work and, you know, at at that time it was around, you know, that Steve Bidoff was out and there was information about dad involvement and I said to him, do you feel bad that, you know, you're away for so long from your boys? And he said, well, no, because when I'm there I'm totally present. Like there was no, whereas if a mother travelled for two weeks at a time away from her children, well, just imagine. Oh, yes, you exactly. Know, the, the women. Exactly. Whereas yeah. the same dad might be like, oh, no, we talk on Zoom once a week. And yeah. then he's like, dad. Well, it wasn't even there. Zoom at that stage. So, you know, it was totally. Yeah. And my own husband was travelling with his, you know, work. He'd be in the UK for a couple of weeks or might be in Canada for a couple of weeks. Nobody ever said, and, you know, if your child has a problem, they always say, where's the mother? Yeah, no one suggested it was his fault that your son had dyslexia. No, no, no. And he wasn't the one reading the bedtime stories or hearing the reading or anything else. You know, he wasn't the one with the homework. But Mm. nobody ever would, well, he didn't even take them to the appointments. But, you know, even if he had (laughs) of, it wouldn't have been, you know, it would have been, wow, what a great dad because. Or if a dad goes out with a baby in a um, carrier. Yes. My dad's wearing the baby. Everybody, it's such a chick magnet. And all the young and old ladies are going, oh, isn't he gorgeous, blah, 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 blah. And I've got nearly 18 years between my oldest and my youngest. So, you know, one of my big boys would take the two, you know, when he was 18, had his licence, took the two-year-old to the pool, and everybody thought it was his child because, you know, he's a big guy at 18 and everybody's telling him how wonderful he was and what a wonderful dad he was and I think you know it might have just been teenage girls who wanted to talk to him (laughs) (laughs) but you know he'd get all this feedback because he had his little brother with him whereas yes if only we were like that with mums wouldn't it be great if everywhere a mum went everyone was like what a great mum you're doing so awesome yes Yes, aren't you beautifully engaged with your baby? You know, find something that that mother was doing well or, you know, just make it up. Who cares? I love your baby's shoes. How do you keep a hat on her? Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Just any kind of positive reinforcement I think would make such a big difference. Well, then they'd go home feeling great and then you're not, you know, because there's that noise, that white noise around you that's telling you, uh, you know, mums question themselves the whole time. That's right, and that's when mums are vulnerable to the bad advice, mm. you know, and they think maybe I should be doing it like this or maybe I should be trying that. Or maybe my baby's waking up three times a night so I must be doing something wrong. It must be my fault. It yeah. must be my fault, whereas I think the father would roll over and go back to sleep anyway. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so what's next for you, Pinky? You've been doing this for a long time and you're not looking like you're slowing down anytime soon. So what are your kind of no. plans for the future? Well, we've got, um, you know, I started booby foods, but, you know, I just started with a couple of things of booby vickies, which, uh, you know, cookies for breastfeeding mums, just because I saw hungry mums, you know, that were two o'clock in the afternoon and they weren't eating, they hadn't eaten anything, maybe a cup of coffee at breakfast time, you know, and I just thought, well, let's nourish these mums. It wasn't anything big, but, you know, getting those testimonials that they're helping. So we've just done some research with the university here, like literature reviews and scope reviews of um, 
you know, nutritious ingredients for mums and babies that impact that. So there'll be some more work there. Um, also um, another book, um, which I haven't started yet. I've just done, um, you know, the, <laughs> I've just done the proposal. So for doing <laughs> that, um, I've got an online course for lactation consultants and a, and a business, you know, lactation consultants going into private practice because there just isn't the support for women who want to start their own private practice. So, Oh, that's great. And again, this is where your marketing and copywriting skills come into play because you, as yes. you were saying, you, you started out working with um, Arnott's on, on selling biscuits, you know. I so. wasn't, oh, well, well, yeah, actually, I wasn't working with them. It was just one of that companies. I didn't do any work with them. But, oh, um, I see. No, no, it was just we went round and we had assignments. So, one of so the you companies. Were learning, you were learning from them, do you mean? No, well, no, I was eating them. And you were just eating them. <laughs> it was just a matter of sometimes people supplied food and goodies that they, you know, the agency had. I see. With a particular agency. Yeah, no. So, um, yeah, different things. Um, yeah, but the copywriting's, I don't, I don't know. I think if you can write well, and look, I was always good at English anyway because um, I, as an adult, I've been diagnosed with ADHD. I was the kid that was always kicked out of classes when I was a kid at school, and my English teacher was amazing. He'd just point to me, instead of giving me detention, he'd just point to me and say three or five or whatever, and that was how many laps. I had to do round the oval before I was allowed back in the classroom. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Everyone yeah. else used to kick me out and, you know, I'd sit outside and be a nuisance or something like that, you know, so or, that, or they'd have to keep me in at lunchtime. So this was, you know, so English I was perfectly fine at, yeah. So, but, you know, it, it is a skill to be able to write copy. I think so. So now you do some support with lactation consultants, helping them to start their private yeah, they're probably oh, yeah, they yeah. businesses. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So that's not clinical. That's you know, I mean, yes, we have the odd clinical discussion, but really, it's more about you know that business. Um, yeah, because there just isn't the support, and I think a lot of people, and you would probably notice it with daughters too. A lot of them have come up through volunteer with a breastfeeding association or La Leche League, um, or they've worked as midwives or um, some sort of child health nurses in a, an employment situation where they've been paid. So, you know, again, women have a real mindset around money as well. Mm, yes, there's a lot to work you through. Know, to, to get paid, there's a lot of work through that. And also maybe people don't realise, but there's no government funding for lactation consultants, is there? No. You can't get any kind no, of... No, you can't get it on Medicare, no. You yeah. can, you can, if you've got health insurance, you can claim back from quite a few health insurance um, providers, but... Again, you know, we if it was Medicare funded, it would be incredibly helpful. It would make such a big difference, yeah, to just yeah, know that you could, everyone so could access women. that. Yeah, would be accessible to so many more women. I mean, often hospitals have a lactation consultant, but again, everybody's busy. Do you, are, you know, are, women are in and they're out. Do they see that person? Some child health nurses are also IBCLCs, which is great but an awful lot aren't. And I know in Victoria, breastfeeding is optional when they do that course. Mm. Oh, it's an elective, not optional, it's an elective. So they'd get basics, but not. And again, you know, just because you go to a healthcare professional doesn't mean you get good breastfeeding advice. You know, yes, you can see um, a GP if she hasn't breastfed her children or she doesn't see the value in it, um, you know. Or, and I think also there are providers who feel they will make mothers feel guilty, which 
you can't feel guilty unless you give your permission. And I don't believe it's guilt when breastfeeding goes tits up anyway, because it's it's a real, you know, I was talking to a mum this morning who um, is, is now expecting her third baby and wanted, you know, an antenatal session. And, um, you know, people, people sort of will try and save you from disappointment, whereas it's not about us saving the mothers. If a mother wants to do it, you give her the, as much support as you can give her and she's going to make the choice around it. And whether she absolutely exclusively breastfeeds or she needs to supplement or whatever she needs to do, um, I just say every breastfeed is a success and as much as that woman can do. And I've had mums who, you know, perhaps have had tubular breasts, insufficient glandular tissue, but they've managed to partly breastfeed to get that baby to about six months, start some family foods. And then by about nine months, it's just breast milk and family foods. And that mum can breastfeed full term. You know, she's still breastfeeding that baby at two years old mm. um, along with family foods. And he's not necessarily having any supplements by then, but you know, if she's had to, but that mother is really happy and really fulfilled. Yes. And empowered. Yes. You yeah. know, rather than say to that mother, well, it's no point, you might as well put him on formula. That's that's just not, that's just a fetus. But I think, you know, people had, and I've had mothers say, you know, I went to the GP, I wanted some help um, and I, I didn't want to wean, but he's just assumed he's lightening things up and saving her from disappointment by telling her, well, you've done a great job, you can stop now. You know, I think it has to be that mother's decision. Yes, I think so. And often as a doula, this happens, a mum will come home from the hospital and for whatever else reason, someone has said to her, oh, well, it'll be too hard for you to breastfeed now. Um, mm. You know, and I always just say to them, do you want to breastfeed? And so many times I say yes. And that no one's asked them that. Like no one said, do you no. want to breastfeed? Let's support you to try. Let's at least try. Yeah. 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 And we'll give you as much support as we can and we'll refer you to the people who can. But this poor woman this morning had even been told by a lactation consultant, I wore aim for two weeks. And I thought, hang on. And whether she meant we'll aim for two weeks and then I'll reassess and we'll see how you're going. She may have meant that. But, yeah. you know, when mothers receive information, she thought she was only going to be supported to breastfeed for two weeks. And I said, no, no, you can go as long as you like. If your baby's getting any breast milk, it's still protective for that baby. Um, yeah. And there's a lot, I also see a lot of mums now, like, you know, when obviously when I had my oldest two kids in the 70s, it was, you know, there weren't things like breast pumps around. There wasn't, whereas I think now people, you know, just as we've got intervention in birth, people are medicalising a lot of normal baby behaviour, not just breastfeeding, mm -hmm. but infant sleep as well. It's all being pathologised. Mm -hmm. And it's normal baby behaviour for a baby to feed frequently, for a mum to need to rest, you know, whether that's just, you know, I just say Netflix and chill, you know, just sit back and rest. And it's okay, um, you know, to do that. And it's okay to call and help. And it's okay to sit on the bed or the floor with your older children and, you know, feed outside and give them something to play with outside, you know, whether it's a squirty water bottle or a, you know, paintbrush and paint the fence, just working out ways that you can do these things without making breastfeeding such a big complicated thing that you're triple feeding and you're pumping and you're this and you're that you know in some cases that might be necessary but there just seems to be a lot of intervention 
Yes, I agree. I see that a lot too, that it's sort of like intervention is seen as like the default option rather than after we've tried a bunch of other things. Mm, mm. Let's, yeah, let's see, see what we can do with what we've got at hand right now and mm. go to those things, yeah. I loved what you said earlier when, when your um, lactation consultant students ask you, what do you pack in your breastfeeding bag? And what do you say? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah well, so, you know, that's, you know, you're part of your business course. Someone's going to private practice and say, what do you pack in your, you know, in your bag that you take to see mothers? And I just said a boob and a baby. So, you know, I have my knitted boob and I have my doll and, of course, I have gloves. You know, you have gloves and hand sanitizer, you know, as well, but just, you know, the basics. Whereas there's a lot of weighing of babies, there's a lot of, and look, in some situations because of COVID, maybe mothers don't have another way to get their babies weighed. But if you're only seeing a mother once or perhaps twice, it, you know, and a test weighing, that went out in the 70s, you know, to, to weigh a baby before and after a feed to see how much they've got. Because if you're going to do that, you need to do it over 24 hours. Mm. And who's doing that? And, you know, I've seen mums weighing nappies to check how much the baby's had, you know, things like that. And they're trying to add it up. And it's just so much extra stress. Mm. So I think if we can stop that, teach mums to look at the output of that baby, you know, the wheeze, the poos, what's going on? Is that baby hydrated? You know, it's lips moist, it's eyes moist. Um, when did it last pee? All those sorts of things just Mum can mum can see that and teach her how to know that the baby's swallowing effectively. Um, you know, what are signs that the baby's feeding effectively and is content. Those sort of things are more useful than bringing in too much equipment. Yes. And again, not as a first resort, like you're saying, there might yeah, be not as a first resort. Yeah. important, but we shouldn't have bags full of gadgets. You know, we should just turn up with our, our hands and our hearts and our boobs and our babies and yeah, get on <laughs> boobs with it. And I mean, yes, look, it depends where you live too because sometimes people, you know, live remotely um, and yes. something like a nipple share wouldn't be available. And I know with COVID, a lot of stock is not easy to get at a pharmacy. So some of the, you know, some of the lactation stops were just discussing the other day. She was saying, you know, there were no nipple shields in her area. And I said, well, maybe, maybe it would be worth taking some, you know, just then if you do need them or that mother does need them temporarily or whatever, they don't okay. have the stress of going to 10 different pharmacies. and No. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to think it's it's a balance really, mm-hmm. but it's, um, you know, keeping things as simple and as natural as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is and, and what that mother's capacity is, you know, if she's got a couple of other toddlers at home, is she going to be able to pump five times a day or eight times a day? Maybe she's not. And unless she's separated from her baby, if the baby's sucking effectively, well, she doesn't need to pump. Yeah. You know, unless, you know, unless, um, you know, I know with my daughter it was because she had these issues around supply and around glandular tissue. You know, she breastfeed every time he woke up, breastfeed every time he was going to go to bed, breastfeed any time he take a boob in his mouth. But if he happened to fall asleep without having that extra feed, then she would pump. Mm. You know, just so that there would be that stimulation would be constant because, yes. you know, keeping those prolactin levels up. But, you know, not making it, that you're so working so hard and so stressed that things become unsustainable. Mm, Yeah. I think it's such an important approach. Thank you so much. Um, So if anyone wants to find out about your work, we'll put the link up. It's pinkymckay.com and you can click through to the um, Booby Bickies website from there as well. And if people are interested in their lactation 
um, uh, consultant, uh, like private practice stuff. Is that all like on your website as well? Um, it's Booby Business Boot Camp. Yeah, well, I just run that, you know, a couple of times a year. So I've just taken yeah. it and take. So I'll do it again about February next year. Yeah, so they can certainly um, join that. Yes, yeah, so that's Booby Business Boot Camp. Right, we'll get. Uh, I probably should put a link on my website. It's just that I hadn't, you know, I'd kept it a little bit separate. Yeah. Yes. No, I couldn't see it there, which is why I asked. No. So we'll make sure the links are all up um, underneath the the podcast recording at newbornmothers.com. And thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to add before we go? Who are we talking to? Mostly mums or mostly? I mean, I, I listen to your podcast. Yeah, so. I'd say it's both. Although my audience is professionals, I know a lot of mums tell me that they listen as well. So right, I think it's both. right. Yes, I mean, yeah, they can, you can actually download the first chapter of my book, Sleeping Like a Baby, on my website and just see if that feels, you know, if that resonates with people, which it probably will if you're taking a fairly natural approach because there's definitely no sleep training in there. Um, yeah, and we think, oh, and all my books are on audible.com as well. So mm. I've got Parenting by Heart, Sleeping Like a Baby, 100 Ways to Calm the Crying and Toddler Tactics, and they're all on Audible, which I don't know, I find Audible really helpful. And I find Audible really helpful for, um, you know, mums who are up feeding at night or, you know, they're watching the clock, how many are doing the math, when will I get back to sleep again? And I think sometimes either listening to a meditation, you know, put your earplugs in if you don't want to disturb your baby or your partner, and you can listen to something while you're doing those night feeds, which is quite nice. Or if you go back to sleep, you know, for some reason you start doing the maths in your head about when you're waking up, you can download an audio book and you can actually with Audible, you can set it for say 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And if you fall asleep, you don't have to wind back too far to get it. But at least if you miss some of the story, um, you know you've fallen asleep. Yes, yes, exactly, without looking at the clock. Did I get to sleep or didn't I? <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you so much. That's fantastic. We'll include all the links to that so if people want to check out the audio books or um, the business boot camp or any of that kind of stuff, it'll all be up with the show notes. Thank you so much for being okay. here, Pinky. Thanks, Julia. Bye. Here at Newborn Mothers, we believe that every family has the right to high-quality postpartum care. If you want to join us, learn more at newbornmothers.com. And if you like this podcast, we'd really love you to leave us a five-star review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.